Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. There are a number of iconic structures in American cities. These are structures that are so closely linked to the very identity of the city that when you see them, you go, aha, that's in that city. For San Francisco, there are really two structures that clearly meet that description, the Golden Gate Bridge and the Ferry Building. But unlike the bridge, the role of the Ferry Building has changed over time. The story of the Ferry Building is laid out in a new book, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. We're lucky to be joined by the author, John King, this morning. Good morning, and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning, Roger. Thanks for inviting me to a show so far from the coast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but the book is really interesting, and I guess what I'd like to ask you first is what motivated you to write the book, and how long did it take to do the research? In a way, I've been doing the research since I joined the San Francisco Chronicle at the end of 1992. I grew up in the Bay Area and never paid much attention to the building, but when you're working writing about architecture and urban design, you start realizing the centrality of this building just to kind of how San Francisco looks at it. And so a lot of the research is very just kind of um, by way of doing other stories and starting to realize that this building didn't survive by chance. It survived because of how San Francisco defined and redefined itself. And then over time, the fact it was reborn into this kind of waterfront destination for tourists and visitors and you know, local residents got me thinking about how much the role had changed, but also the way that the role changed signified how San Francisco changed. As you've mentioned, you know, the building has gone through different iterations. Let's start with the reason why the building was designed. What was San Francisco like in the late 19th century, and what was the importance of this building? Sure. In a nutshell, it was a city that could not really be reached except by boat. (laughs) And it was the eighth or ninth largest city in the United States in 1890. You know, the the gold rush is something that people might remember as you know kind of an old tale of oh people discovering gold and so on and so forth but the fact is that it really tipped so much of the united states towards the west and the west coast needed a specific city to spring up and become just kind of the centerpiece of that and that was san francisco by fluke geography as much as anything else But unless you went down to the south and came up, you couldn't get there. So ferries were going back and forth across the bay as early as, I think, 1854. And a very ramshackle ferry terminal was built in the 1870s. But the city realized it needed a large facility to handle all the different I think there are five different ferry destinations on the west. So you had five different cities all sending ferry boats into the city, into San Francisco throughout the day. And so the idea became, well, we need to have a transportation depot, but we also need to have a building that announces San Francisco to the outside world. So you have the classical design, you have the big clock tower, things like that. 
Let's flesh that out a little bit for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the building. Um, can you give us, as best you can, given that this is radio, a description of what someone coming in on a ferry in the late 1890s after the building was open, what would they see? What they would see almost as soon as they started crossing the, the bay, unless it was foggy, <laughs> which, you know, was certainly, certainly an issue. Uh, what you would see from far away is an illuminated tower, day or night, and very much a classical, you know, the model, it's kind of like uh, St. Mark's in Venice. It's kind of like a one of the towers, uh, Seville in Spain, things like that. You see this very distinct classical tower rising up and then flanked out from it on either side about 100 yards is a three-story base building. So you have this very imposing linear and vertical structure. And then coming out of it, and this is very different from today, were about eight ferry slips that went, it was like an airport terminal. Mm -hmm. You didn't pull in, get off and walk across land into the building or beyond. You pulled straight in, you got out, the gate took you into the building. Again, like, like an airplane terminal. So you saw just this gigantic set of gates waiting for your boat to pull up amid the other boats with this big dramatic clock tower looming overhead. And I got the sense from the book that just as important as the view from the, for the ferry passenger coming in were the views for the citizens of San Francisco looking down Market Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the reason that the ferry building is located precisely where it is is that it's at the foot of Market Street. And I think anyone who has been to San Francisco is aware of its presence. I mean, Market Street's, you know, hasn't been what it was for 80 or 90 years, but it was the widest street in the city. It spilled down from Twin Peaks, the heights in the middle of the city, and it reached the bay, but instead of reaching the water, it reached this big building that kind of at the same time marked the culmination of the view, but also it became this orientation point between water and land. What were some of the engineering challenges faced during the construction of the ferry building? (laughs) One of the things I enjoyed about this book, anyone who writes a book learns a lot along the way, and so I know a lot more about engineering than I did. You know, the entire San Francisco Bay is an artificial creation. You know, it's like other East Coast cities like Boston that was this kind of network of marshes and tidal lands and things, which doesn't work if you're trying to be the biggest city on the West Coast. And, you know, you've got people from around the world coming in for the gold rush. So before too long, you had an artificial curved shoreline put in with a seawall. So the ferry building projects from the seawall and it's above soft bay mud. So how on earth do you anchor a big building in the 1890s into this? So what the engineer and the architect came up with was this system that there was a lot of doubt about during construction, but more than 5,000 stripped trunks of Douglas fir were brought down, driven into the mud 
essentially all sawed off so they were the same height 80 so the 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 trunks worked out to be 80 feet tall except you couldn't see them because they're all in the mud and then on top of each cluster of the trunks you'd have boxes put on top concrete was put in the concrete died that became the concrete posts became the starting point for this arched catacomb-like foundation that extends 600 feet and about 300 feet into the water you know just this extremely heavy creation no lodging to bedrock beneath the mud and there was doubt that you know there was fear it was just too heavy and it would slowly topple or that it would snap in an earthquake but it didn't snap in an earthquake and it still seems to be in real good shape that was i had two questions i was listening to to you just now one was how on earth do you pound um, those kinds of large wooden beams or wooden, wooden posts into the ground in the 19th century. I mean, they, it's not like they had uh, steam engine pile drivers. How did they get them down there? You know, that's the thing. It was some crude form of steam engine pile drivers. Oh, they did have them. Okay. And, but, but the thing, well, but not in any sort of high-tech way. I mean, it, and one of the frustrating things is doing the research. I couldn't really figure out part of that. Because it was just described that these all arrived and then they had a big driver to push them down. And that seemed to be kind of as a matter of course. The problem was figure out how on earth do you get, how do you saw them to all be the same height, essentially sawing them in the water. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of work for that and the equipment would break and float away. And, and of course, I think you just mentioned that as far as we know, those, uh, we do know, those, po- those wooden beams are still there today holding up the building. Yeah, the building, no, not a surprise. The engineering stability of the building has been tested numerous times since then. Most recently when the building was redone in 20, 2003, although there are tests going on even now. And <clears throat> so you've got these trunks the fact that they're totally in the mud means they have not been exposed to air since they were driven down and then the concrete foundation so so all tests indicate they have not decayed or rotted at all and then the concrete foundation it, it was in a way so primitive that whereas foundations tend to have lots of steel uh, what's called rebar lays through to add reinforcement. This one doesn't. However, that also means you don't have yes. steel rebar running through that brings in rust mm-hmm. and brings in decay. So it's a very simple system, but it's a very, it has proven to be a very efficient system. So while the building itself, you know, structurally sound and had a role when it was constructed, mm-hmm. let's talk about the construction of the Golden Gate and the Bay Bridges and how those changed the role for the ferry building. Absolutely. That's a good question because it, it's easy to forget now, <clears throat> but um, automobiles weren't just taken for granted when they came. There were a lot of fights over automobiles. Should they be allowed to drive it? speeds high enough to kill people 
should they be given precedence over other forms of transportation on city streets, all these things. But the attraction of the automobile was such that people just moved to it irresistibly, not just in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but in, you know, by the by basically by the World War One era and certainly into the 20s, you had all this draw. People got wanted to get cars, and once they got cars, they wanted to go where they wanted to go. And that meant if you lived in the East Bay, you know, if you lived on the continental side of San Francisco across the bay, or if you lived to the north, you didn't want to have to go take a streetcar to get to the ferry or drive your car and then maybe sit in a line of cars for hours to get on a car ferry. So you had huge forces pushing to get the bridges built. And this was a time of very heroic bridge building in America. It it wasn't long after the Brooklyn Bridge and all these grand bridges connecting cities on the East Coast. And you had a, the Navy did not want a bridge built where the Bay Bridge is. It was comfortable with the bridge where the Golden Gate Bridge was. But eventually it was just, we need to have these things built. And at the time, the Bay Bridge was the longest bridge. And at the time, the Golden Gate Bridge, I think it spanned the deepest passage or something like that. But both were seen as these big, big engineering triumphs that America could take pride in. You had Franklin Delano Roosevelt by telephone took part in the beginning of construction of each each building. I'm sorry, of each bridge. And then he also took part via phone and radio, just like this, um, (laughs) of signaling that traffic could begin. And so what happens then, I take it, is the ferry traffic decreases dramatically because now people can use their cars. Yes. I mean, there were a number of different ferry operators and the ones coming in from the North Bay, Marin County, they ended service essentially the week after the Golden Gate Bridge opened. And and, And not unwillingly. I mean, it's like, like, okay, we're done. We're going to have a financial interest in this other thing instead. With the Bay Bridge, the ferry service kind of continued with a lot fewer passengers. And then streetcars were on the bottom level of the Bay Bridge initially. But, but they took about six months to a year to actually get operating. And... So once those were done, then you had ferries cut off from coming over from Oakland or Berkeley or places like that. And then service actually continued until 1958. Southern Pacific, the the train company, had ran one back and forth throughout the day because that was the end of their transcontinental railroad line. You know, if you got on the Southern Pacific or whatever it was called, out east, you know, in Boston or New York, you would go as far as Oakland and then you'd get off and then you'd get on a ferry and you'd come to San Francisco and the ferry building was the end of the ride. Uh, But eventually they said, we're going to do buses instead. So the purpose of the ferry building is sort of a a terminal to greet ferry passengers sort of starts to wither away. And I take it that then gets compounded 
in terms of the role of the ferry building by the building of the Embarcadero Freeway? Yes, anyone who knows San Francisco, having discovered it in the past 20 years, cannot imagine what that area used to look like. <laughs> it was Because you had all these, I mean, you know, the, the ferry building was, it was part of a big industrial working waterfront with lots of little finger piers. Well, then shipping after World War II made that obsolete. So you had all these car drivers wanting to come in and into the city. And once they were in the city, move as effortlessly as possible. This is like every other big city in the United States. And meanwhile, the city wasn't sure what to do about the Embarcadero waterfront because the shipping business was dying off. So they wanted to run a nice elevated freeway, zip it up along the water because who really needed those piers anymore? So San Francisco, a city which existed because of the water, which grew up because of the water access from the outside world. In the late 50s, you had a ferry building that no longer had ferries. And then you had a double-decker concrete freeway 60 feet high directly to the west inland of it so that San Francisco was cut off from the Bay waterfront for about a mile and a half that included the view down Market Street. So essentially the city severed itself from its reason for existence. Now the freeway was destroyed by the Loma Linda earthquake. How was the role of the ferry building, building reimagined then? That's one of, one of the things that is fascinating is that the Embarcadero Freeway wasn't destroyed. It was damaged. Okay. However, but I only say that because it gave the in for critics to step in and say, we've got to get rid of this thing. As soon as the Embarcadero Freeway went up, San Francisco politicians realized they had made a big mistake and that the critics had been right. And they pulled the plug on most other freeways that were supposed to get built in the city. But then you had this real love-hate relationship where theoretically everyone hated the Embarcadero Freeway, except it was an easy way to get downtown. It was an easy way to get to Chinatown, to get to North Beach, to get to Fisherman's Wharf. So in 1986, just three years before the earthquake, residents had a chance to vote on taking down the Embarcadero Freeway and putting in a real nice boulevard, and they voted no by like 60%. So it was like, well, that's the end of the issue. The Embarcadero Freeway is here forever. Then you had a the the earthquake hit and the opponents came back and said, look, it's not just a blight, it's a danger to us. <laughs> so you got to take it down. And the mayor went along and the board of supervisors went along by a six to five vote. The freeway got taken down and suddenly the ferry building has its visual prominence again. There had been efforts to revive it throughout the 70s and 80s and they'd never gotten any traction because it just didn't make any sense on how people could actually get there in an enjoyable way. But now it was right there at the foot of the Market Street. The Embarcadero was transformed into this real, you know, what you have in a lot of American cities now. The waterfront became a major destination for people enjoying the city as opposed to 
industrial people unloading boats. Um, you know, so it almost became like a lifestyle zone. The ferry building's perfectly located midway down, and so it reopened with all these nice food shops and restaurants on the bottom, this gorgeous restoration that made the building look better than it had since opening day, and it became a real magnet. And, and I take it that today it's still sort of a vibrant location for tourists and locals to go and eat expensive food and uh, shop, at, uh, shop at high-end shops? The cost is an issue. I, that, I dip into that in the, uh, speaking of money matters, I dip into that in the book. But it's tricky. I mean, San Francisco gets such a bad rap right now um, nationwide, and there are undeniably really troubled parts of it uh, due to drugs, due to buildings hollowed out by the pandemic in terms of businesses, whatever. If you go down to the waterfront and if you go down to the ferry building on a Saturday when there's a farmer's market that wraps around it, it's 2017, it's 2007. I mean, it just, it feels like it always did. There are very, and very few vacancies inside the ferry building. Um, upstairs, the office space is fully leased, I believe. You know, so it, it's a reminder that for all of San Francisco's problems, there are still these incredibly seductive allures to the place. And the waterfront is one of them. We've been talking with John King about his book, Portal, San Francisco's Ferry Building and the Reinvention of American Cities. Mr. King, thanks for taking the time with us this morning. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. This month, the Internal Revenue Service began to roll out a pilot for the agency's free online tax return filing program known as DirectFile. Gretchen Ruck, Senior Advisor at Lockhaven Solutions, joins us this morning to share her expertise in examining the risk of adopting new technologies as we focus on the ins and outs of the IRS's new online filing application, DirectFile. Gretchen, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. So sure. let's begin. What drew you to investigate the IRS Direct File, uh, their free online tax filing service? Um, well, glad you asked. Uh, that's actually a pretty good story. So um, as part of my role with Lockhaven, I've been contributing to a series of articles on cyber risk for the electronic discovery reference model, which is actually an international member-funded organization that works on e-discovery, um, privacy, security, information governance. So they work to improve those sorts of fields. And as part of the series, you know, as I write articles, I'm looking for kind of what ideas will really be interesting for folks, what can really be helpful. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about this and looking at Direct Fell coming up, what struck me was like um, a conversation I'd had with my wife's uh, stepfather around the end of last year. Last year, he got hit with uh, identity theft, and it really kind of took a toll on him, you know. It made him, you know, much less trustful of any kind of electronic communication, email, text messages, like definitely would question any websites he was on it. You know, so when you see somebody like that, he lives in Florida, which is a state that's going to be participating in direct file, the pilot this year. You know, you could see him as maybe being somebody that could benefit, but maybe would be leery because of identity theft. So I thought to myself, you know, this would be a really great topic to help him and other folks like him to understand like what this is and whether it's a really good safe alternative that they should consider. So with that, what is this and is it a really good safe alternative they should consider? 
Um, I would say yes. And uh, okay, so so um, IRS, you know, everybody's familiar with it. it. You know, if you have any interaction with the federal government, it's typically with the IRS. So, you know, IRS, usually if you're going to file taxes, you've got alternatives, which are to be to hire a tax professional like a CPA to fill out taxes for you. You could use an online tax service. So H&R Block, TurboTax, something like that. Or you could get out your pen and paper and you know, fill out your taxes, put them in an envelope and mail them in. So what you don't see in those options and what direct file is, is a new alternative. It doesn't replace any of those, but it's a new way you can file where you can file online free using the IRS directly. So it's sort of cutting out the middleman. I mean, there are some caveats related to it, but this is an alternative that's a long time coming. There've been different moves along the last 20, 25 years to offer something like this, but it's been a kind of a tough road and I'm finally glad to see that it looks like we're here. Have you been able to compare direct file to the IRS's trusted partner program where they'll send you over it? If you have a, for low to moderate income people, the trusted partners will often do it for free. So what you're referring to is um, the Free File Alliance, which mm -hmm. is a program that the uh, IRS started back in 2003 with a consortium of, I think it was originally 17 different organizations, which it did include groups like, again, like Intuit's uh, TurboTax and included H&R Block and many other organizations. And so they, they got together and they said, hey, you know, if IRS agrees to stay out of the tax filing business, you know, we will all offer free alternatives for folks who are below a certain means so that they can use our systems and the taxpayers don't have to invest in the government developing their own system. So this program began and, you know, basically still is going on to some degree. But um, overall, I think people would agree that free file has been a failure of a program. So um, a lot of the organizations that are especially the leaders of free file uh, really did not in, you know, actuality hold up to what they said they would do. So it, it was really low because um, the organizations that participated in free file generally were making use of what are called doc patterns. So essentially they were setting up their websites in ways that made it much more difficult to find the free options, instead directing people that could qualify to versions of, this, of their text filing software that they'd have to pay for. So it was uh, 20, in 2019, I think ProPublica reported that, they estimated that about $1.5 billion of revenue was you know, received by by TurboTax and others from folks who should not have had to pay for these solutions, but they wound up contributing that much instead. And, and of course, this is what is part of what's driving the IRS to come up with its own system. Can you um, can you tell us about was there was there a regulatory barrier to the IRS doing its own system that had to be removed? Oh, sure, of course. So um, you know, like I mentioned, the Free File Alliance began in 2003 with an agreement that the IRS would not compete with these different, you know, for-profit organizations. So, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of folks who knew that this program really was not successful. It really just was not working. But nonetheless, you know, because of lobbying and such, these programs were really working hard to keep IRS out of this game. Um, in 2019, there was actually a move in Congress to permanently ban the IRS from participating in, you know, filing. But um, because of ProPublica's reports and, and others that kind of put up some outrage because of the fact that, you know, hey, the IRS should not be barred from this, they, um, you know, essentially this was not put in place. So, so you know, as of 2020, the um, IRS, instead of being 
barred from ever competing in tax filing was kind of given the reins to try to look at what alternatives might be available. And they were told to kind of go and just determine if like a pilot would be a good idea, which in 2022, they said, you know what, let's move forward and develop the pilot. So we've got the pilot running. It's only uh-huh. active in so many states. Where is it active roughly? Right. So what uh, the IRS decided to do was, first of all, to pilot with states where there's no state income tax, because ah, that makes okay. it a lot easier. So there are eight states that fall into that category uh, that, they, that they're partnering with. Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Wyoming, um, and uh, Washington State. So with those states, again, there, there's no there's no state income tax, so it's a relatively easy process to do federal taxes. And again, this is also, while they're piloting in only certain states, they're also, it's only for certain types of income and people that fall like underneath a certain kind of wage threshold. So there are four states that actually do have state taxes that did in fact as well take part in the pilot. And so those states agreed to work with the IRS to see um, like what they could do just to make the transition from the federal to the state filing easier. Like if you're going to your accountant or using something like TurboTax, it just kind of all happens at once. So this added complexity they were afraid would draw people away from the solution. So three of the four states that have state taxes, um, which are Arizona, Massachusetts, and um, New York, they decided to work with the IRS to have direct file pre-populate some of the those states' tax forms. In California, they already have a pretty robust system in place that pre-populates a lot of the state tax forms, so they didn't really need to do that step with the IRS. But those are the ones piloting. And folks that get a W-2 from an employer, and that's their main source of income, they'll probably fall within you know, the guise of who can use this. Um, you know, Folks that are gig workers, so they just do contract work, likely will not fall in it. Like there are other bits and pieces too that fall in it, but those are kind of some of the big delineations. You started the, our conversation by talking about your father-in-law's uh, identity theft. Obviously one element, important element of a program like this is to uh, reduce data exposure risks. What is, sure. um, what, what is the IRS doing to sort of enhance the security around this? And I mean, does it provide better security than say one of these other tax filing services? So, I mean, that, that's definitely a great question. It's the, the heart of what I was really looking to report on. So, um, you know, okay, so there's a lot of different things that so when you work in cybersecurity and privacy that can signal risk, risk. right? The things that we all should worry about. Um, and so essentially, you know, if you look at the four, four alternatives that we're talking about, which are again, the three that have existed before, which are paper, using a tax professional, using software, and then of course, direct file, if you compare them, you know, what I like to look at are aspects of them, such as like, how complex is the process? Is there paper involved? Because paper creates its own risk. Um, you know, is there reliable support? Um, do you have to use third parties to support the work that you're doing? Because if there are third parties involved, more hands touching things, there's more opportunity for things to get stolen. So these, these are the kinds of things that I look at. So if you look at it compared to like postal mail, um, you know, when you hand your tax forms to the postal service, you know, there's no chain of custody. You're not sure, you know, did somebody get it at the IRS? Did it get lost in the mail? You know, if a check is coming back to you, you know, will you get the check? How do you know when the check's going to arrive? So there, there's a lot of questions about paper that can make it really problematic. Um, if you're looking at, um, you know, a CPA or you're looking at TurboTax, a lot of them 
well, if it's a CPA, they might hire seasonal help. So bookkeepers to help them just do the initial filling out of the forms. And you don't know who these folks are. And, you know, since they're only seasonal, if they wanted to take data with them, that'd be easy enough. And a lot of the for-profit tax software companies, they're going to use a lot of third-party vendors to support the work and the ecosystem of what they do. And all these hands touching this, all these systems touching the data, it's an opportunity for the data to be stolen. So basically with the IRS, you're cutting out the middleman. So you don't have these opportunities as much for theft. You know, it's a less, lesser attack surface, essentially is what we would call it. Um, so, so that's why really the IRS offers just a much more succinct opportunity for those who qualify to really file their taxes. Now, when rolling out a program like this, you know, no matter how well a website works, you do need the people like the help desk. You need the people to be able to call when you have an issue. Did the IRS put some effort towards this, knowing that, you know, when you are with like a TurboTax or a H&R Block, you know, there's certain expectations. Are they going to be able to meet maybe the same level um, of, of support? Great question. Um, tax filers should be able to expect the same quality of customer support through the IRS as they would get through one of these, you know, tax software companies, at least the same, if not better quality. Um, so that's kind of the first part of the answer. So, you know, if you look at the satisfaction with folks that have had to call customer service or reach out to customer service through some of these services, there have been complaints about, you know, supposedly these folks were expecting live support. We're promised that, but we're given bots to talk to chatbots instead and things like that have happened. So, so when you look at the quality, this is kind of let's level set. But so with that in mind, in 2021, the IRS put out something called the Taxpayer First Act, which really outlined a bunch of different improvements IRS wanted to do to become more, quote unquote, friendly to the taxpayer. So following that in 2022, they actually opened up something that they called the Taxpayer Experience Office, and its goal was specifically to improve customer service. So this is something that they've been working on quite a bit, and they've got a lot of plans in place to do customer service. And in fact, if you look at the, t the plans for direct file, they have somewhere between 60 and 80% of the budget ongoing annually just dedicated to helping with customer service. Anytime you're running a pilot program, the purpose of it is to evaluate whether it works or not. Can you share with us a little bit about how you think this program, you know, w w what are they testing against? What are they looking for in order to determine whether it is a success or not? Right. Um, so, you know, any, I've been in the software industry a long time. And, you know, anytime you do a pilot, it's not expected to be perfect. You know, a pilot is a learning experience. That's really what it's about. You want to find out what people liked, what they didn't like, what worked well. And you expect some small things to, to maybe go wrong. But, but overall, you know, you expect it to be generally a success. And what a success looks like, how you measure success are, of the folks who are eligible, what percentage of them uptook the system and followed it through? So they, you know, in other words, for this to happen, people have to feel comfortable that they know how to engage it. They have to feel comfortable that they can complete it accurately. You know, if you're not accurate, there, you know, there's always the risk of getting audited, you know, getting fined, all these things could happen. So this is a big deal thing. So to be successful, people have to engage it and use it properly. Um, and what this means also is that like, you know, you have to make sure that you know, anybody using it is not going to get delayed. So, you know, there's a there's a date the taxes are due. If something happens and extends, you know, beyond that date, then there's going to be a problem with the pilot. You know, if folks run into incidents, so like let's say that data is stolen, or people like their communications with the IRS are fraudulent somehow. If somebody was in the middle, like these would make it very much not a successful pilot. So, so really, you know, 
a successful pilot is people going, huh, that wasn't so bad. And that's really what we're looking for here. And, you know, it's really important that this is successful for this to become an ongoing initiative after this year. I think it's interesting the, huh, it didn't go so bad is probably true um, <laughs> right. way to, to be able to evaluate it. So as we conclude our discussion, you know, do you have a, you know, a key takeaway for our listeners um, with regards to IRS and direct file? Sure. Um, you know, overall, what I'd say is like, you know, direct file is going to work for some folks, folks this year, but for the majority of Americans, it won't yet because it simply is a pilot and it's limited. But, you know, so those folks who can't use it, you know, as you're looking at how you follow your taxes, you should really take a look at, you know, what's the right option for you when you consider and weigh out the cost, you know, of doing the option you want, the benefits you receive, and the, the risk trade-off for your household. You know, there's, um, every one of these options really has benefits and risks. And, um, you know, if you use one of these online software companies, there's a lot of concern that they're giving data to social media. Is this a risk that concerns you? If it's not, maybe this method's not so bad. You know, these are the things to, to, to consider. And when in doubt, ask. You know, it is okay to pick up the phone and call customer support or to call your local CPA who you use and say, hey, what are you doing to protect my data? How do I make sure that my data isn't being st stolen, it isn't being sold or used for other purposes? How do I make sure that things are right? And that's okay to do too, is to reach out and really get the answers from, from the source. We really appreciate the time we've been spending with you. We've been speaking with Gretchen Ruck. She's the Senior Advisor at Lock Haven Solutions. Gretchen, thanks for joining Mountain Money this morning. Thank you so much. Vitruvius Build and Design harnesses the power of advanced AI technology to conceive and construct the most advanced, efficient, and adaptive luxury homes while revolutionizing the art of erectable, habitable masterpieces of strength, utility, beauty, and now technology. Joining us this morning to discuss how they revolutionized this building process is founder and CEO Charles Ocello. Charles, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Architecture is not your first career. Um, what type of work were you doing when you began your career, and how did you become interested in architecture? Yeah, so first off, I want to clarify. So I am not uh, an architect. Um, so at Vitruvius Design and Build, we actually are certainly partnered with architects along the design and build process. But um, I am not an architect myself, um, focus on the build side. And we also have an interior design division. But um, interesting. So my first career is actually uh, in medicine. So I'm a board certified emergency room physician. Um, and um, you know, I actually always loved doing things with my hands. I loved building. I loved tinkering. And when I was in sixth grade, my dad sort of wrangled me and said, hey, we're going to build our house together. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so uh, that really ignited, I think, a real passion for me. And, and seeing something that started with just dirt uh, coming into a home and uh, that houses inhabitants and housed our family for a number of years. And, you know, kind of fast forward, um, it was always something that was in the back of my mind. Um, but really also I, I, I loved people and I, I loved trying to understand people. And I, that really led me on a, on a path towards medicine and, and I pursued that went to medical school and, uh, but all along the way I was actually, doing uh, more so from the developer side of things, doing uh, housing and, and um, doing development, um, being very involved in construction and design and, again, thinking about how people live. And 
Um, and so, um, you know, pursued that, um, um, had a sort of a, a shorter career in emergency medicine. Um, and then, you know, really as I, uh, you know, built up Vitruvius and um, really have gotten out of medicine, uh, it's really interesting though. I, I feel like a lot of the things that I learned, um, tens of thousands of patient encounters, you really get to understand uh, people on a very, very deep and intimate level. And obviously that informs, I think, a lot of the things that we do, both on the design side, how people live, how people, you know, um, want to consume their homes and, and live in different spaces, um, what their fears are, um, how they like to meet and, and enjoy other people's companies, how they like to interact with their communities, macro and micro communities. And so, uh, and the other thing that it really informed was those tough discussions, right? Um, understanding emotional intelligence. That's something that I feel like is not really talked about much. Um, when you go through the process, which can sometimes be pretty arduous of designing and building a, you know, luxury custom home, it's a two or three year process and at times can be contentious. At times we're very much so marital counselors yeah. and um, and so uh, having a deep sort of understanding of that. Uh, so there's, there's been a lot of things that I've learned along the way in medicine that informs me as a better, um, uh, you know, a better CEO of our firm. We could probably spend a lot of time talking about your interesting personal journey and, and what it takes to wake up one morning and say, I don't want to be an ER doc anymore. <laughs> but I think what I, one thing that is clear is there had to be passion mm. in you. In other words, for you to make a change like that, you had to decide, this is what I want to do. And so what was your mission behind the company? What, were you, what are you trying to do with Vitruvius that's different and interesting? Mm. I always looked at um, the construction world and, and certainly the luxury residential construction world as one that was very technophobic. Uh, and, and the way that I always thought was very innovative. I, I was always asking, not why, but why not? Why can't we do something along these lines? And what's really interesting is that, you know, really behind agriculture and hunting, uh, construction's the second least digitized industry. Um, but yet, you know, just residential construction contributes 4% to our GDP every year. So that's, you know, um, I mean, in 2022, it was over a trillion dollars that it contributed to our GDP. And so that's where I was really interested was how we can take technology. How can we take innovation? And I think for me with, with my career in medicine, how can we take a deep and intuitive understanding of people and how can that inform people living in a better, more innovative and more sustainable way as we continue to sort of um, you know, progress, um, in how we live. And, and again, as you've said, you how do you bring technology into this field? Let's talk a bit about that. Mm. You know, where have you brought technology in? And then as well, I know AI is a big piece of the technology you employ. Um, so we started just by like using computers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, very much so this industry still uses Excel spreadsheets. And, um, and so our goal is to really lead that lead on that innovation front. And, you know, in terms of, of AI, obviously it's a, it's something that we talk about at our firm a lot, but it's, it's very much so spoken about, you know, in the public discourse. Um, it's a hot topic right now. And so, 
you know, I think that that can also bring along for some folks, um, well, that sounds scary, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so that's the first thing that I think we like to dispel is, and the way that I think about AI is really, it's just a tool. Um, and studying the past can inform a better future. And so AI is just another tool in our toolbox to look at the data that we've used in the past to understand what data we actually need to look at, you know, more specifically, and how can that inform a better experience? How can that inform a better design experience for our clients? How can it inform a better build experience for our clients? And very much so, our clients care about two things. They care about schedule and they mm -hmm. care about budget. Yep. That is the two things that they care about. And so, as we look at deploying AI and deploying these powerful tools that we have, and we're building out the world's first design and build experience software management platform, how can we deploy these things to really augment that experience and kind of put rocket fuel into it? My guess is that as, as I'm listening to you and as, as I think about, when I drive past construction sites today, they don't look all that different. Hmm than they looked 20, 20, 30 years ago in terms of what I'm seeing on the ground, the way that process works. I'm willing to bet that you're going to be able to give me an example of how the technology that you bring would sort of create one example of, of a change. Mm -hmm. What would be different? What, what, you know, obviously, we're trying to do something with rocket fuel. Where, where, where are we going to blast off? Let's blast off. Okay. <laughs> um, I, this, is, this is where we can get into the weeds, and these are things that I really enjoy looking at. So, you know, first off, I think you can look at some numbers. I mean, um, throughout the process of, of a, the building of a luxury construction, uh, luxury residential home, 118 different phases of construction, 118. Some of these architectural review guidelines are in the 100 to 150 pages. They change usually every few months. I mean, this is very complex stuff. Again, you know, my background's in medicine and I'm challenged every day by the level of complexity as it relates to this. Um, I'll give you just some other brief numbers. I mean, you know, a home that we're doing out in Talisker Club Tuahe right now, just the steel, there's 176 pieces of steel in this home. So when you imagine just the erection of the steel itself, um, and so to give you kind of a, a rocket fuel example, we're actually working with our subcontractors and we're deploying 3D technology as it relates to the excavation um, process of a home. And so we're actually geopinning to specific points. They actually geopin um, and, and mark their machine. So they'll actually have a GPS reader that's on the actual bucket. So they can tell us exactly how much haul out um, we have, how much infill we have. And so the way that that informs it is you can imagine that our environmental impact in the, in the construction world is tremendous. It's so big. I don't even think we really measure it or talk about it. And we want to start talking about it because we want to be good, you know, stewards of our environment. And of course, that's even more prevalent in Park City. And so if we can cut down on, on, trips out, if we can cut down on 18 wheelers on the road, if we can make our subcontractors and vendors more efficient, that has a tremendous knock on effect in the, in the improved environmental impact that we have just on one luxury home. And I think about, you know, again, the more data you get per each product, mm. the more that your firm, you know, continues, I, I think you can see then that exponential effect of the efficiency that you'll receive over time. 
talk to us about how the listeners can find out more about your design and build. Sure. Um, I'd love for you guys to visit our website. So uh, it's Vitruvius.design. Um, you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on X uh, and also LinkedIn. And are, are there pictures of some of your projects on that website? There are. Okay. You'll enjoy it. Okay, we've been speaking with Charles Ocello, the CEO of Vitruvius Build and Design. Thanks for spending time with us this morning. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll... Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.